Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. On Saturday, Hamas militants from Gaza invaded southern Israel, massacring some 1,000 people, including at least 27 Americans, and kidnapping an estimated 150 others, including some from the United States. Israelis compared the terrorist attack to 9-11. The Biden administration was swift to denounce Hamas and support Israel in unequivocal terms. Top aides went out of their way to express disgust with some congressional Democrats whose first instinct was to call for a ceasefire. We believe they're wrong. Uh, we believe they're repugnant and we believe they're disgraceful. Uh, our, our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds, hundreds of Israelis. Uh, there can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. As Biden prepared to address the crisis from the White House, he took a hardline position about both sidesism with his aides during a speechwriting session. A knowledgeable source told Politico that Biden, quote, angrily and forcefully admonished aides who tried to water down the speech. In the final version, the president was crystal clear. Like every nation in the world, Israel has the right to respond, indeed has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. I just got off the phone with the third call with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I told him, the United States experience is experiencing our response to be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. The headlines about that speech emphasized Biden's moral clarity and his righteous anger. This was the easy part, condemning vicious terrorists who had just murdered hundreds of young people at a music festival. That clarity has quickly given way to much murkier moral questions. What does the United States do if Israel's response violates the laws of war? And much more difficult tactical and strategic concerns. How do we find and rescue American hostages? How do we keep countries such as Iran from taking advantage of the conflict? How does Biden keep aid to Israel flowing when Congress is broken? None of this is as simple as Biden's initial response. One of the people at the White House whose job it is to help figure all of this out is John Finer, the president's principal deputy national security advisor. Wars are really, really ugly and awful and, and best avoided, uh, even though they sometimes can't be. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Before he worked in the government, John Finer was a war correspondent for The Washington Post. He covered conflicts in Iraq, Lebanon, and in Gaza. I was uh, with a, a big crowd of people in a city called Khan Yunis, uh, and there were Hamas fighters walking around uh, dressed in black with baklavas and, uh, and RPGs on their shoulders and Israeli helicopters uh, that would periodically uh, sh- shoot at fighters. In 2009, he took a fellowship in Barack Obama's White House. By 2015, he was serving as chief of staff to then-Secretary of State John Kerry. Today, Feiner is the number two person at the National Security Council a job that's been held over the years by the likes of Colin Powell, Bob Gates, and Antony Blinken. I sat down with Finer 
in the White House's ward room, a cramped, wood-paneled space in the West Wing basement that recently served as a temporary situation room while the real one was being renovated for a year. We talked about striking the right balance between supporting Israel and expressing concerns about an extreme response, Biden's warnings to Iran, how Feiner's own experiences in Gaza have influenced his job, and whether America should now consider itself at war with Hamas. A lot of the messaging from the White House has been about moral clarity and standing with Israel and the horrific nature of the attack. Um, There has also been a a stream of messaging about respect for um, the rule laws of war. Um, Can you talk just to start that conversation? I know this is at the center of, of, I think, uh, America's role here. But can you just talk a little bit about that balance? And um, if I noticed the briefing today with Kirby, there was it was dominated by questions about that. Sure. So I guess on the first part of your question, uh, when it comes to sort of moral clarity about what Hamas has done, I, I do think, and and you know, he, he's my boss, so you could say I would think this, but I do <laughs> uh, genuinely believe uh, that the president has demonstrated a truly unique and, and maybe almost historically unique combination of resolve and empathy in uh, displaying the moral clarity that you um, you know that you ask about. Uh, it should not be hard, uh, frankly, to denounce uh, what has happened. Uh, I, I will not because it's available to everybody uh, go through a, a, a kind of elaborate description of some of the atrocities and images and videos and everything else that we've all been uh, bombarded with. But uh, it, it should not, in the face of, of Hamas's uh, just appalling uh, actions, be difficult to condemn them. Uh, what I think is harder is to uh, articulate that condemnation in a way uh, that connects on a human level, that has uh, empathy woven into it, and uh, that doesn't come across uh, simply as as anger. Um, and I and I think the president has has been quite successful uh, in in doing that. Um, to your to your question about uh, you know our messaging on on uh, laws of war, look, uh, we have said from the beginning of this uh, a conflict uh, that we fully supported Israel's right uh, to defend itself, period, uh, and would continue to uh, provide support for uh, Israel's efforts to defend itself and uh, have articulated all the ways in which we would do that. We also have been quite clear, and the president said yesterday uh, that he has told this directly to the prime minister, uh, that we believe democracies are stronger, uh, more secure, more successful, uh, when they act according to uh, rule of law, including uh, law of war during uh, military operations, and uh, that that is quite important. And so, you know, I think you are going to see, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of ugly things unfold in in the coming uh, days and weeks. We already have, uh, obviously, some of the ugliest things that we have been uh, a witness to in in, in many years. Uh, in, in terms of what's already happened with Hamas's attacks. And, and, you know, you may or may not see us respond in real time to every single thing that happens in the course of a war. You know, wars are one of the things I, my, my main lesson, I guess, that I would draw from my time in journalism is that wars are uh, really, really uh, uh, ugly and awful and, and best avoided, uh, even though they sometimes can't be. 
Uh, but we are going to make, I think, the bulk of our uh, comments and messages and advice uh, in private. We believe it's more successful uh, in that way, even as we describe in public uh, kind of our broad uh, concerns and, and uh, even expectations. Is Israel so far heeding um, our advice slash warnings about respecting the laws of war? So one of the things I'm not going to do is kind of uh, rate them at, at any given uh, kind of moment, snapshot, in a period of time. Uh, you know, he, he, here we are on a, I think it's Thursday afternoon. Yes, Thursday. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't think that's really our role. And I think doing uh, things like that makes it harder to have the more direct, more candid conversations that we can best have in private. Are we at war? Is the United States at war with Hamas? Um, considering the fact that it, the number of Americans that were killed is quite high historically, and um, if not, why not? I would say the United uh, that Israel is at war with Hamas, uh, and the United States is is four square behind uh, Israel in, in providing uh, support uh, for that war. And I'm not trying to dodge your question, uh, but you know there are technical and legal and other considerations involved in the determination legislative that the United States is, is at war. And what, what I would say right now is that, that this is Israel's war. They have said as much. Uh, and I would point to the remarks that Secretary Blinken made uh, today, which uh, basically were that, that Israel has an incredibly capable uh, military. It has been their doctrine uh, for decades that they must and will defend their country on their own. Uh, if necessary, but also uh, that they will never have to be alone in a circumstance like this uh, as long as the United States exists. And, and I know that President Biden believes that. And that is uh, why I think uh, you have heard him speak about this with such uh, conviction, why we have acted as quickly uh, and in such a uh, and as in, in, in as robust a manner as we have uh, so far. I wonder if you can just set the context for the administration's policy towards the Middle East up until the doorstep of what happened on uh, on the 7th? Just briefly. Sure. So uh, I think President Biden and, and we have had a, a theory of managing what can be, almost always is, an extremely uh, turbulent region that can and has had a history of a really sucking American administrations in more deeply than they intend and keeping them there and more invested uh, over a longer period of time. Yeah. And uh, President Biden's theory was that militarily speaking, over the previous two decades, the United States had been too invested uh, in, in this region. Uh, two long wars, one of which uh, you know he, he ended on the periphery of the Middle East in, in, in Afghanistan. And uh, a theory that previous administrations in some cases have had that, that what it means to be involved in the Middle East is boiled down to your military presence. He had a very different theory, which is uh, heavy diplomatic involvement in trying to de-escalate uh, tensions and conflicts in the region, trying to help countries really starting with our core allies better integrate with each other in the region, right. uh, but not uh, – predicated on the same heavy level of military commitment that we had seen really since uh, 9-11. And, and so uh, that had been the theory of the case, remains uh, the theory of the case uh, to this day. And, and we think uh, that there is a, a strong record of uh, across the region with some very um, you know, notable exceptions, uh, uh, turning down uh, tensions and, and the temperature on some longstanding conflicts. 
the situation between Israel and the Palestinians was always uh, a challenge, has been a challenge going back now many decades uh, for administrations from both parties. Uh, Iran is another area of tension uh, that we have uh, been quite focused on from the minute we got here. Uh, but in terms of other conflicts and, and areas that we inherited, areas that were um, highly challenging, highly problematic, like the conflict in Yemen, we believe uh, actually the, the situation and the circumstances are much better than they were when we arrived. Is it right to say that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was not a top-tier t- priority and was, was, was downplayed until this recent violence? I think people make the mistake of assuming that it is less of a priority because there was not a major push made on a diplomatic two-state right. solution. There's no peace process. No uh, high-profile uh, special envoy, uh, uh, no push uh, for direct talks. And I think that reflects not in any way uh, a diminution in in the prioritization of, of this issue, which the president has worked on uh, now going back uh, you know, many decades himself, but rather a, a kind of assessment and an analysis of the landscape that suggested that that sort of, you know, high profile, senior level uh, diplomatic push was not likely uh, to be successful and that neither side, frankly, was either calling for or ready for uh, a push to make uh, the sorts of of compromises and sacrifices that would be needed uh, for a peace process to be successful. So we focused on managing uh, uh, the conflict in other ways. And do you think that that, in hindsight, do you think that was a mistake or? I I think that assessment uh, in hindsight was uh, was was extremely uh, accurate. I think that uh, you know what you are seeing now uh, unfolding in in Gaza is is the manifestation of essentially a spoiler, uh, an entity, a terrorist organization that has never uh, been interested in, uh, peace process has never been interested in, in diplomatic uh, resolution uh, to the conflict uh, that has sought to achieve its political aims through through violence and and through terrorism and that is not a new uh, aspect of Hamas's uh, conduct in the region uh, even though this latest uh, series of attacks is the most extreme and most egregious that we've seen. Do you buy the argument that part of the um, uh, strategy here, if you could call it that? was to um, disrupt the U.S.'s normalization, uh, uh, pursuit of a normalization agreement with uh, with Saudi Arabia? Or, I mean, is there any intelligence to suggest one way or another about that? I don't think we have any information to suggest that's the case. Do I think that they are uh, supportive of or, or favorably inclined towards normalization? I, I don't. But I think ascribing a kind of geopolitical motive right. uh, like that to what has transpired, frankly, gives them too much credit. Yeah. Uh, I think, if anything, what this results from is is a an ideology uh, that is much more focused on, on nihilism and, and violence and destruction uh, than any sort of political project uh, that, that, that your uh, question would suggest. Um, and again, you know, uh, we don't have perfect information, but uh, no, no real indication that that was a focus for them. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. 
Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What have we learned about, I mean, I know that so much of the questions about intelligence and what we're learning about this has focused on Iran's role. And I know you guys have talked about that ad nauseum. Um, is there anything else that, that, you all, that we're not asking that you all have learned um, that helps us understand uh, why now, why uh, exactly this uh, kind of terrorist attack? I, I guess I'd say two things, um, and and none of them really go uh, to the thrust of your question, which is you know the proximate uh, cause yeah. of this. One is that taking a step back, uh, I Iran is complicit in what happened by virtue of the fact that that. They have now, uh, for many years, uh, armed, trained, financed, uh, essentially built uh, Hamas in, into the terrorist army that, that they have uh, become. And so whether or not uh, they sort of uh, greenlit or uh, even knew about, uh, in an immediate sense, what was about to happen uh, starting last Saturday, uh, they bear some responsibility for this, and there's just no doubt about that. But nor do we have, as we've said many times now, uh, sort of smoking gun evidence uh, that 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 they either knew or uh, or authorized uh, these attacks to go forward. So so uh, the Iranian role here cannot cannot be denied and is unmistakable. Second, though, and and I think this is important and, and sometimes lost in the analysis of of, of what is now happening. Uh, this is not a conflict uh, that is taking place between. Israel and the Palestinian people. This is a conflict between Israel and a small, uh, destructive minority uh, that has organized itself uh, in a violent way uh, and that has uh, unfortunately risen to power in, in Gaza. And uh, they do not reflect, in, in our view, the aspirations, uh, the, the sort of worldview, the values of the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian people. And it's important that that not get lost in the conflict as it unfolds. I want to get into that because that seems central to everything that's going to un unfold there and to our response. Just and central yeah, also, I should yeah, say, because many of those people who do not share those values, who would never have uh, countenanced what they saw uh, from Hamas are now going to be the ones who pay the price uh, for what Hamas has done. I want to dig deep into that, but just take one step to the uh, side and talk about your own experience as a um, as a reporter who reported from Gaza. Um, and maybe there's no you don't, you don't have a clear answer to this, but is there what's the one thing most important lesson you learned um, there? So uh, I guess I'd say a, a that would be relevant. You know, that would you know, hopefully that's relevant to the current conflict. But even if it's not, <laughs> a few things about that. One. Um, I first went to Gaza in, in 2008 um, uh, after spending several years in Iraq, uh, obviously during uh, the conflict there uh, where I was covering it as a reporter. And uh, even after- Just remind people who you were reporting for at the time. I reported for the Washington Post. And even after uh, having spent that time in Iraq, I found uh, the challenges that the civilian population faced in Gaza to be beyond almost anything I had seen in, in even the most uh, of violence, violent and war-torn uh, parts of Iraq. Wow. Uh, and this was not during a period of, of intense conflict. This was during a period of, of some episodic uh, clashes in two early 2008. I went back. So uh, that was after the, uh, Hamas was in power, after the Israelis had pulled out? Yes. 
Yes. Uh, just run-of-the-mill daily life uh, for people uh, living in Gaza. I, I ended up uh, covering a, a set of uh, sort of what, what you would call euphemistically in the press now minor uh, skirmishes where I was uh, with a, a big crowd of people in a city called Khan Yunus. Uh, and there were Hamas fighters walking around uh, dressed in black with baklavas and uh, and RPGs on their shoulders and Israeli helicopters uh, that would periodically uh, sh- shoot at fighters. And uh, this was just daily life uh, for people there. Again, not during a war, not something that, that was generating significant even news coverage at yeah. the time. I happened to write about it because I happened to be there. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have covered it uh, at all. A year later... Uh, I wasn't in the middle of like a a front page crisis. Not at all. I think my story was like somewhere in the middle of the front section, not not at all on the front page. Um, A year later, during uh, uh, what became known as Operation Cast Lead, a a major Israeli uh, incursion into Gaza that started at the end of 2008 and went into 2009, uh, I went back uh, to Gaza, first covered uh, that period from Israel, went back uh, to Gaza and... uh, was struck just by the extraordinarily difficult situation of the civilian population during a, a war um, with no uh, easy ability to exit, uh, no place that felt uh, particularly uh, safe. And, and so the coverage focused on on what that population was experiencing. I imagine that actually makes you unique among some of the foreign policy advisors to the president. Do you ever talk to the president about that experience? Does that ever come up when you are in these conversations that like you actually had sort of personal on the ground experience like that? I mean, I do not uh, sit with the president and reflect on my uh, my, my or, even stories, other po- or even other senior what, what, policymakers. What, I, saying, what it, I will say is, is um, not, I, I think for a lot me, of your colleagues don't have that experience. For me, uh, my time in, in journalism, which was, you know, first four or five years of my uh, career, almost all of it uh, overseas in, in, in war zones, was uh, for me the foundation of kind of how I came to think about the world, understand uh, the world, the sort of frame through which I, I looked at issues when I moved uh, eventually into what my uh, journalist side. friends call the dark side. And there you just did it. So I you stole my thunder. <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, it was a, a kind of um, uh, indispensable for me, a part of how I came to think about these issues. And, and so I draw on those experiences in, in how I come to understand them. I don't necessarily uh, regale my my colleagues or my boss uh, with those stories. So in the Ukraine conflict, uh, the administration um, carefully calibrated its language and its military aid and its diplomacy um, to reduce the risk of escalation, right? I'm wondering... What's the equivalent consideration in in this conflict, which obviously has very important differences, but um, some important similarities? So I am, uh, if I do understand the the sort of question, the analogy I'm sort of trying to get at. I think so. I guess I am resistant to uh, too much analogical reasoning in assessing uh, situations, even two crises that we are dealing with at, at exactly the same time, because the underlying uh, circumstances are are inevitably uh, so different. I, I'm not going to yeah. reject the premise. I'll try to answer your question. But I, I do want to say that it is hard to draw too many conclusions uh, from one situation uh, to another. And so so we're, we're a bit always, I think, reluctant uh, to do that. Um, but because these are two crises that we are managing at the same time, certainly you know, the, the balance of deterrence and, and escalation is is one that is relevant in, in, in both cases. You know, we have gone about that in a particular way 
in, in the Ukraine context uh, yeah. th that we believe has been uh, calibrated and, and successful. Um, you know, we, we have uh, some of the same considerations in, in, the, in the context of, of Gaza. Uh, you have you've heard. So? Well, I, I think if, if you go back and look at some of the things that the president has said uh, over, you know, not even a week now uh, in which we have been in the, the throes of this, I think some of the public lines that have gotten the most attention and, and understandably so are things he has said about the possibility of other countries or other uh, entities or organizations involving themselves uh, in this conflict. I believe a couple of days ago, he said something along the lines of, you know, I have one word for them, uh, don't. Uh, he has also uh, said quite clearly that no country, no entity should should seek advantage in this moment in which, you know, Israel is in, engaged in, in conflict with Hamas uh, in Gaza. And so there have been words and then there have been actions. Obviously, the, the physical support that we have provided uh, for uh, Israel's military uh, actions, including the provision of, of munitions uh, and other things uh, that the Israeli Defense Forces have said that they need. And then the movement of uh, American military assets uh, to the region. Again, not... Uh, What's the message of moving the, the Gerald Ford Well, I think the message of that is quite clear. We have, we have said that is not something that is focused on Hamas uh, per se. That is intended as a strong deterrent message, uh, uh, lest anyone believe, as the president uh, warned against, that they can seek advantage militarily, anyone hostile to Israel uh, in the current moment. Um, and so I think we've been quite clear about that. Those comments have, have gotten attention as we knew that they uh, would. And, you know, they are meant to send a clear signal. We believe they have. The Saudi crown prince had a phone call with the president of Iran. What's the, I think that was, I believe that's today if I've got my chronology right. What's the significance of that? And did we have any role in sort of encouraging that dialogue? It's an interesting development. Um, you know, I think, as you know, uh, the, the Saudis uh, and, and Iran uh, have been embarking on, uh, I would probably prefer that they characterize it, but, but something akin to at least a process towards rapprochement. Uh, you know, they have obviously been at odds in, in the region for quite some time um, and, and are looking at the possibility of a different sort of relationship. By the way, uh, you know, despite our, our very strong views about uh, uh, how uh, damaging Iran's role in the region can be. This is not something that we're opposed to. It's, it is consistent with uh, the theory that you asked me to articulate at the beginning of the conversation uh, of, of, of how to manage this region, which is to de-escalate longstanding uh, tensions, de-escalate longstanding uh, conflicts, and integrate countries in the region um, more closely uh, with each other, and so you know we're not we're not in opposition to this. We're certainly not opposed uh, to to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia uh, uh, speaking to the Iranians in in the midst of this crisis. I strongly suspect, uh, although you know we don't we we were not involved in the call that that he passed a version of the message that that we have been trying to convey, which is uh, uh, not to uh, get involved. And how would this work? Would we tell MBS like, "Hey, make sure he make sure he knows no, no. what you well, know"? These what, are these he, are. I mean, again, these are there. There is this perception that the United yeah. States, because of our, no, our long involvement in the region, is, <laughs> is sort of this puppet master that that pulls the strings of all these countries. These are yeah, sovereign you know countries. Someone, yeah, they do. Uh, they they act in their own interest. Uh, they they make their own decisions, and and so um, you know, again, I'd leave it to them to characterize exactly how that call went or or what was discussed. Uh, but my strong suspicion is the Saudis do not want uh, uh, this conflict to expand. Let's talk about um, aid to Israel and what's 
in the pipeline available right now and what the president is going to request uh, starting next week, or if not earlier? So, so look, um, you know, I think w- what we've said on this and-, and I, I mean, request and, from Congress, of course. Yes, I, I assume that's where you're For going. listeners, that, you know. Um, what we've said on this, and, and by the way, what we've done up till now has been I- entirely- um, uh, efforts that have been made without the need for supplemental appropriations, um, and I think there's uh, there just, there is conflict here. There mean? is more, no, including oh, in the immediate aftermath of when got things it. broke out, That's the munitions that, that we sent, yeah. you know, our posture uh, uh, moves, uh, the other forms of of military assistance uh, that have been uh, requested that we're acting on, um, but uh, you know, I think we have also been quite clear uh, that we will be. Uh, once Congress is back in a place where it can function more normally and, and actually act on uh, uh, legislative proposals, um, uh, going forward with a request for additional funding for a range of, of uh, core national security uh, initiatives. And I'll, I will hold off on characterizing that any further until we are ready to talk to Congress num- about it in more detail. To it <laughs> Again, not the kind of thing I would get into uh, before we talk about it with Congress. One more question on that, which is um, everyone's trying to figure out what the legislative strategy will be with respect to this. Um, is it a good idea to attach this to Ukraine aid and to, you know, two very important uh, priorities that have a similar uh, case, national security case for them? Um, would you support that? Here's what I would say. Fortunately, uh, in this White House, we have uh, people who are uh, significantly more experienced and smarter on on legislative affairs uh, than I am, and I uh, 100% uh, defer to their judgment about how best uh, strategically and tactically to go about uh, getting the resources that we need. So no decision. It sounds like no decision has been made by that, or it's just not not, not on this podcast. I don't <laughs> think we'll be out fr- tomorrow Friday at 5 a.m. Okay. in case well, that's, that that matters. I think I don't think you're going to be scooped, but we'll see. All right. I've seen a lot of the coverage today, but I imagine this is a kind of minute-to-minute situation. What's the latest information that you have about American hostages? And, well, let me leave it there. So, uh, look, this is a truly uh, horrific situation just on a human level. Um, I I think it's hard for anyone uh, hearing about uh, this, reading about this, not to imagine what it might be like to be in that situation yourself or to have uh, a family member uh, or friend uh, uh, caught up in, in a situation like that. Uh, uh, almost unimaginable, the sort of the, the worst case scenario. Uh, and so um, this is something that the president uh, has put at the very top of, of not just his uh, priority list, but ours uh, as well. Secretary Blinken as you know, was in Israel uh, today, met with uh, a number of, of family members of people who have uh, uh, suffered from these attacks. Um, you know, we have said we know that there are Americans uh, who are currently being held hostage uh, in, in Gaza, uh, as by the way, there have been uh, now more than 25 uh, Americans who have been uh, now known to be confirmed to be killed uh, in this conflict. And that number uh, is likely to rise just given the sheer uh, number of Americans who are in Israel at, at any given time. And, and, you know, there are a number of Americans who are still unaccounted for. So uh, what are we doing about this? Uh, we have sent uh, uh, a team of experts from across our government to consult uh, and advise uh, Israeli counterparts, experts in, in hostage uh, recovery. And, and, you know, I don't want to 
describe the, the details of, of that work, uh, but it's something, unfortunately, just given our history that we have some experience with and believe we can be uh, uh, helpful on. We are also using diplomatic avenues uh, and we are sharing every bit of uh, uh, intelligence, uh, actionable or otherwise, uh, with the Israelis who will be in the operational lead uh, for all things military, including uh, any attempt to recover hostages. And, and beyond that, I don't think there's much more I should say other than uh, our heart goes out to the people who are in this situation and we will do everything we can to get them back. John, thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keening. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening.